Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club, our summer edition. I'm Megan O'Rourke, and I'm here with Katie Royfe, a professor at NYU, and Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Welcome, both of you. Happy summer. Thanks. We are going to do something a little bit different in this edition of the Audio Book Club. We are going to talk about two short stories, John Cheever's The Swimmer and Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. And the reason we're doing this is that there are two big new biographies out of each writer. So there's Brad Gooch's biography of Flannery O'Connor. Um, does someone have that title? It's just Flannery. It's right? just Flannery, I think. Yeah, Flannery, so Flannery, a life, a of, life Flannery of Flannery O'Connor. And then we have Blake Bailey's Cheever, A Life of John Cheever. And we'll talk a little bit about the biographies, but really the biographies sent us back to the work, and that's what we want to talk about today. We're going to start with John Cheever's The Swimmer. So one question I just want to throw out to both of you is, you know, one thing I was struck by reading this and the O'Connor is just, you know, the difficulty of going back to these stories that have so fully entered the kind of cultural lexicon that we feel that we're so acquainted with already somehow. And it was really actually totally enjoyable to just reread the story, which I have a vivid memory of, but haven't probably read in about 12 years. And so what was that experience like for you? Did you feel you could read the story afresh or did you come to it with all these ideas of what it was? I had less a vivid memory than a vague sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the story is vivid enough to blow that out of my head instantly. So I felt like I was reading it for the first time when it must be the fourth yeah, and I feel like I, it's it's enough time that I've forgotten whatever my high school teachers have right. taught me. Yeah. So I feel like it is it it did feel to me as, with the Cheever stories especially new in a way, mm-hmm. um, even though they are familiar to me from some mm-hmm. deep past. But they're great to read again. Yeah. I had that experience a little bit more with the O'Connor. I realized where they were entering into reading the story, and we'll touch on this later, I felt like, oh, it's so hard to read this new but then but then one thing i think is really amazing about both writers is they're such powerful writers that they take you in right away and you do sort of the high school english teacher's voice drops away and and their voice starts 
takes over. One thing I was struck by right away was how incredibly artful Cheever is at bringing you into the story. I mean, The Swimmer starts, it was one of those midsummer Sundays when everyone sits around saying, I drank too much last night. You might have heard it whispered by the parishioners leaving church, heard it from the lips of the priest himself struggling with his cassock in the vestiarium, heard it from the golf links and the tennis courts, heard it from the wildlife preserve where the leader of the Audubon group was suffering from a terrible hangover. I drank too much, said Donald Westerhazy. We all drank too much, said Lucinda Merrill. It must have been the wine, said Helen Westerhazy. I drank too much of that claret. How do you say that? Claret. And you just move right away from this universal dis- statement. It was one of those Midsummer Sundays when, and there's sort of an invocation of the group when everyone sits around. Then he takes you through the, the second person, the you, 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 and then this sort of tour of the town. I mean, it's interesting that the priest starts us off because the rest of the story moves so into kind of suburban um, middle upper middle class life and away from religion. But we should talk about that. Um, and then he brings you right down into the social group. And that just seemed an incredibly artful it, way of, of getting yeah. us into this story. This really, comp- this really story that operates on so many different levels. It is, and uh, as you mentioned it just now, I realized that you know we're talking about this sort of litany of I drank too much, and mm-hmm. uh, juxtaposed with the mention of the church, she gives it this, this kind of religious. Yeah, of, it's like a mantra or. A, we use the word litany, which seems yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what do you think about the sort of the story? On the one hand, seems to be this picture of kind of suburban realism. On the other hand, as we all know from reading it and from reading it before, it ends up being kind of surreal or a, a portrait of a single man's delusion. How did you read Ned's journey through these swimming pools? Well, I think. For starters, I'd say that it succeeds as surrealism because in the first couple pages it's so sharply – there's such a sharply defined reality and we feel kind of like grounded in the sense of place. It's a fine sort of platform or launching pad for later flights. Yeah. Also, one of the things that's great about it – I mean I think we should mention the premise being you know, the, that he's going to swim through the swimming pools of the county back to his house. So – in a way, it's like this fake kind of epic journey mm-hmm. um, and kind of has a comic element, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the interesting things about the story in terms of the surrealism is that it moves from this elation that he feels, this like total joy and sensuality and happiness and, you know, the sun and the pools and the sense of well-being to the despair of the ending and the panic and the way he moves through those feelings, yeah, yeah, through the feelings of this athlete going on this journey through the pools, which is obviously starts out sort of deranged seeming. And that's part of the greatness of the story is just how absurd it is that he's going to swim through everybody's pool to get to his house. Right. Well, it's, it's a lark that at first he thinks it's sort of a fun quest that generally sours. And I wonder if the, the kind of arc of that possibly he's drinking all throughout this. Uh, and the fact and it is a story about drinking, yes. certainly. Yes. As, yeah. most of these story, as, as most of Cheever's stories are in some respect. You know, everyone else is saying, I drank too much because they're complaining about their hangovers. He's not complaining about his hangover, which opens up the possibility that he's still drunk from last night. Yeah. Uh, and he continues drinking <laughs> and throughout is the story. drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so there's a sense in which uh, what works well about his gradual sort of sense of despair, the gradually dawning sense of despair is that He's either sobering up or he's moved from having a very pleasant buzz to feeling queasy. 
One thing I love about the premise, just to go back, Katie, to what you brought up about this idea of the quest across the pools, is that when you read it, it's it's a, on the one hand, it is surreal and over the top, but on the other hand, there is a kind of realistic element to it. It captures something very precise about life in the suburbs um, and also that thing you can experience when you're flying over where you see pool by pool by pool. And it also becomes a wonderful way of organizing his encounters with all these different families because one thing that happens when he goes through the pools is that the families, you get a picture of each the kind of ecosystem of each household. And so there are parties in some and other houses. There are people who have gone away, but he gets to see and have these little precise interactions in a way that's slightly estranged from what real life would be, but set nonetheless, you know, because there he is, he's just showing up, he's wet. It's a little like, it's like the kind of surrealism of the graduate almost when he's in the, Mm -hmm. you know, diving suit. It's like on the one hand, you get this picture of the utter realism of these lives and what the exchange would and be I think, like. And, and I think that gets at something, which is the gift of his concision in these stories, which are so amazing. And they were, you know, originally mostly published in The New Yorker. But to accomplish so much in terms of the social portrait in so few pages, which he does in every, in this story, but in all of them, it's a great technique, that pool to pool. Because as you're saying, like, he can go through, you know, he can sort of efficiently get in the entire slice of this culture in this tiny story. And I think that's one of the achievements of all of these stories in general. Right. Yeah. So like the slice is well chosen. It's a sort mm. of a cross section. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Troy, do you want to describe more what actually happens in the story since we've talked about the premise? But uh, What happens is Nettie Merrill, and it's a uh, there's a special sadness to uh, a grown man with a kid's name like yes. Willie Loman. Uh, Nettie Merrill is at a cocktail party or drinking by somebody else's pool on a Sunday afternoon at what he thinks is midsummer, but we'll get to that in a bit. It's uh, later than Nettie thinks. So the idea pops into his head that he's going to swim his way home. It would be a total trip of eight miles, and he has an idea of, in his head of which neighbor's backyard he's going to go through, and there's one public pool on his way. And so he takes off his sweater and dives in a pool, and uh, using his Australian crawl, starts moving. I, I kind of like this list of names, too. Yeah. Of the houses. Yeah, the only maps and charts he had to go by were remembered or imaginary, but these were clear enough. First, there were the Grams, the Hammers, the Lears, the Howlands, and the Cross Cups. He would cross Dittmar Street to the Bunkers and come, after a short portage, to the Levies, the Welchers, and the Public Pool in Lancaster. Then there were the Hollerens, the Saxes, the Biswangers, Shirley Adams, the Gilmartins, and the Clydes. <laughs> and he's uh, decided that this path is, um, he's, he's named it after his wife, Lucinda. And so this is the mm-hmm. Lucinda River. Lucinda meaning light, and light being all about time. And so... He goes along, and at first it's very jolly, and people are offering him drinks, and um, he's taking them as often, always. And so it seems like he thinks he's celebrating community in, in some respect. Oh, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a quest of this individual hero, and he has an idea of himself as a legendary figure. But also it's, it's getting described his relationship with all these people he keeps being reminded of the many invitations that he and his wife have declined, right? Mm-hmm. So is it that they're they're sort of not social and they're not sort of participating in... Or there's just a strict sense of class, too. Mm-hmm. There are right. certain people that you wouldn't go to their right. home, the parvenus, you know, right. whose home you would not right. deign to visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah, it's partly about his idea of what his social station is. You also begin to get the sense that, you know, he and his wife are declining these invitations because they're not getting along themselves. Yes. Yeah. And there's this change of seasons and of energy levels, right, that takes place as he goes forward. Right. You know, he sees a couple of – it's supposed to be midsummer. He sees a couple – trees that are turning red and the leaves are turning red or yellow and this strikes him as odd. He figures that the trees must be blighted. By the time this is all done and he's sort of shivering in a swimsuit, we get the sense that it's maybe more like September than July. Yeah. And Katie, how did you, I mean, what to you is the most striking thing about this story? I mean, why do you think it's become... Well, to to get to the ending, Mm -hmm. you know, where at the end... um, he discovers, he comes to his own house, and he sort of has hints along the way where people say, I'm sorry about what happened to your house and your children, and his house has been sold, mm-hmm. um, and it's empty, mm-hmm. and he realizes that something has happened that he's forgotten or that he can't keep in his head. And in a lot of ways, I think one of the reasons why this story stood out you know, in the collection is that it's such a perfect story yeah. in so many ways, um, partly because of that surrealistic end, which is unlike most of these stories. Um, and Cheever, generally, he's he does these sort of portraits of the same world and these marriages and these families. But this one has a slightly different cast to it because of that ending. And I think the ending is interesting because, as you say, is it meant to be, you know, how is it meant to be taken? What does it really mean? And I think that this story captures really excellently the mood that he Mm. sets and the critique of this suburban world and the darkness. I mean, I think all these stories can be understood by mood primarily, um, not by the literal literal plot. And I don't think it kind of matters exactly, but the mood is that sense of well-being and affluence Mm -hmm. and, you know, the day and the sun and the drinks and then something behind it that's just sort of sour or wrong or bitter or, you know, lost or some vulnerability. And the idea of, you know, that critique, which so many writers after him have taken up from Updike to uh, Rick Moody, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's something now that is familiar, but obviously was sort of new when he was yeah. doing it. I mean, I was really struck by that inventiveness, the kind of leap the story makes into what we're calling surrealism. And it, it made me think, of course, of um, The Enormous Radio, another Cheever story, where he does allow himself to go into this really surreal, um, it's been described as Kafkaesque place, where mm-hmm. a couple gets a radio and it suddenly, a new radio, and it suddenly starts to let them hear what's happening in their neighbor's another great rooms, story, yeah. you know, and it's, it's really fabulous. And one thing... Um, this is incidental, but I was really struck by reading this and that one again is how wonderful Cheever is with sound, how he uses sound to create whole sort of um, emotional atmospheres. But this story is extremely artful, I think, in the way that it starts, as you said, in this place of kind of vitality almost. I mean, we we have the drinking, so we know something people are feeling like things are ebbing. But but Ned, Nettie himself, as he starts out, feels incredibly vital, right? He sort of, ha- as Troy, as you said, he has that sense of himself as a legendary figure, and he feels, you know, he's going to be strong enough to make it across the county. And by the end, he's very physically diminished, too. And it almost seemed like we were going through the the life of a man here, you know, that, that, that the swimming, the act of swimming became a metaphor of sort of swimming against the tide of work and life, and that in the swim of things, you lose 
you just you don't notice that suddenly you yourself have become diminished. These things have passed you by. You're now standing metaphorically at the on the outside of your old home, wishing to enter it again, which is just extremely poignant, but so surprising when you get there. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, yeah, that's one of the important things about the story is that although he's getting fatigued as this goes on, he also has the sense that he can't turn back. Right. There's no turning back. Yeah. And you also mentioned there he's swimming upstream. At one point, he's standing. So there's a bit when he's trying to cross the, the highway. Yes. It comes up an alewives lane, alewives being these kind of herrings that mm-hmm. uh, get netted when they swim upstream. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. Well, and there's a lot of, you know, I said I said I brought up the priest at the beginning. I said, oh, well, there's not about religion on the one hand in the story. But then actually when you read the story, you do see that there's all this kind of metaphysical, the little metaphysical moments where he's studying the constellations in the sky, for example. And one of the things he asks himself at the end of the story is, you know, what had become of the constellations of midsummer? He can't see them right, anymore. Right. And he, when he's beginning, he sort of describes his energy as being... Um, the water, as the water seeming itself like a clemency, a beneficence, which is also very much sort of a religious, spiritual language. And there is mm-hmm. these, you feel that there's this collision between some access to a spiritual world. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Rabbit and things does, we talked yeah. about with Rabbit, just the beginning of this story, how Nettie feels in himself and how Rabbit also is feels that sense of like a kind of phys- preternatural physical gift that's being impinged upon by like the realities of life. Right, right, right also about religion and myth. I think that this story started as like a 150-page novella. He wrote a 150-page draft that was, I think it was like an update of the tale of Narcissus. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. And so there's some of that lingering in the DNA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he apparently got... um, got stuck on it and couldn't and started to say, there's some quote actually in Blake Bailey's wonderful Cheever biography where he says something like, not only do I hate the eye of the character, but I was hating the eye John Cheever who was writing this book, that it really became for him a kind of mire. And I was struck by that quote because it seems like what happened to John Cheever is what happens to Nettie Merrill mm-hmm. in the book, that he starts to be feel diminished and weakened, and he had to free himself from the architecture of a novella. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. and, well, we only have a few more minutes to talk about Cheever, and I just wondered if, is there anything else we want to say about the story or to broaden out and just talk more generally about Cheever and what, what maybe some stories, too, that we would point our listeners toward if, if they haven't read a lot of Cheever or if they want to revisit But before we get to that, first, uh, a word from our sponsor, Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment on the web. As always, Audiobook Club listeners can get the audio versions of books we discuss at www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. For instance, you can download The Essential Cheever, narrated by Mr. Cheever himself and by an actress named Meryl Streep. And you can download that for free if you uh, sign up for a one-book-a-month subscription. And you know what? Even if you cancel during the two-week trial period, you get to keep the book. So just go to www.audiblepodcast.com slate and look for The Essential Cheever after you sign up. So many of the stories are so great. You can almost read any of them. I think in terms of his life, it's interesting to think both about 
the alcohol, the sort of latent alcoholism in this story, which is yeah. in a way a story about alcoholism almost. Yeah. Um, and also the subversion of the normal, you know, mm-hmm. that, that idea of trying, which Cheever obviously in his own life struggled so hard to try to have the normal family in the suburbs and the normal house and the children and the wife. And he was so committed to that in spite of his homosexuality, in spite of his, right. you know, general feeling of not belonging all the time. And to use that particular place of alienation that he obviously inhabited in a very extreme way to narrate the experience of suburbia for the entire country. And I think it's interesting because he obviously he was a very extreme and unhappy man in character, but he's able to capture something larger through that extremeness of his own experience. Well put. I like the enormous radio a lot. Myself. I do too. Did I you... just reread it because I, I had probably last read it when I was about fifteen, and I thought, "Is this going to hold up?" And it really does. But not to cut you off. No, please cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> what else were you going to say, Troy? <laughs> uh, no, really, that, I, I didn't have any other cogent ideas. I remember, I like, I remember liking the five forty eight. The 548 is wonderful. I mean, I think that I, I always loved the 548, and um, I did reread that. And I also, the famous first story in this edition that we're all looking at, um, or that Troy and I are looking at, the Library of America one, uh, Goodbye, My Brother, is also, I think, a, a wonderful story. I remember being a child and being obsessed with this story. I mean, it's really, one of the things that is very striking about Cheever is he's extremely gruesome, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, he goes to a very severe place. Mm. Even though he's capable of being extremely lyrical and he has that slight spiritual dimension that I think a lot of male writers, of American male writers, had from Walker Percy to John Updike and on. But he, you know, I remember being a child. I, for some reason, these were stories I read when I was really young and were given to me in, in you know, in school when I was young and there's a story about a little kid who goes up a ski lift and gets like mauled by the ski lift and killed and I just remember being utterly traumatized by this as you know a 13 year old or something and then reading it to my little brother so I could share the trauma with him (laughs) but you know that really is I think worth I mean even the swimmer has it there's something that is very upsetting about these sure and I mean it's interesting because we're just about to talk about Flannery O'Connor I think Both of these writers that we're talking about today are incredibly dark. I mean, there's something, you know, as I was saying, just in the mood of these stories, even not the particularly violent ones, although some of them are violent for both of them. Yeah. Well, let's use that to segue over to our friend Flannery O'Connor. And yes, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, as I was rereading A Good Man is Hard to Find, I I remember I just was, I just started to feel really sick to my stomach. (laughs) And I thought, this is amazing that I know what the ending is going to be and I know what's going to happen to these characters. And you start out just being so annoyed by them and and you you start out in the mood of this incidental road trip feeling claustrophobic and then by the end you're in a totally different place. But so we're talking about A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. And do one of you want to... Again, do our little plot summary. Well, no, I just did a plot summary. Troy is so good at Troy is good at the plot summary. The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. Uh, is the first sentence of "A Good Man Is Hard to Find," which is the first story in Flannery Connors' 1948 collection of the same name. Uh, so there's a Southern family that's going on a road trip. The grandmother would rather be going to Tennessee. Her son Bailey, uh, who has a wife only referred to as the mother of the children, uh, (laughs) is instead driving the car toward Florida. Uh, So it's Bailey, his wife, their three kids, the cat, 
and the grandmother, uh, who has this notion of herself as an old Southern lady. Uh, she's very taken with her own gentility. She's a fussy old hypocrite. They get in the car. And the kids are really awful. The kids are, the like, kids do bratty. S- right. Yeah. The kids are bratty. Because the reader... It's kind of fighting against the grandmother. The uh, I don't know. I find myself kind of sympathetic to the kids. Uh, one, I feel like one is sympathetic both to the children and the grandmother, and also finds both the grandmother both and the children unbearable. loathsome. Right? Yeah. Like there's a kind of duplicity, which I think is a real Flannery O'Connor tr- trick or trait. I don't want to diminish it with the word trick, but that's something you see, you know, also in a lot of the characters in um, the stories of Everything Rises Must Converge, for example. Right. You know, you you empathize with people you find loathsome, and vice versa. You gotcha. loathe people you find empathetic. Right. There's always the loathing. There's always the loathing, right. Right. She doesn't let you be at home anywhere no. with a character. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in the car. They're driving. It happens that there's a, an escaped criminal called the Misfit on the loose. Headed to Florida. They're headed to Florida. Uh, eventually, the the family comes to meet the Misfit after they've sort of taken this wrong turn the grandmother planted this idea in the heads of uh, these awful children that if they took a road, they'd be able to visit some grand old plantation. With uh, a secret panel and various yeah. tricksy things that might appeal to them. Yeah. All right. It occurs to her that this plantation that she thinks she remembers is in an entirely different state, is in fact in Tennessee. And then there's a car accident, and then there's an encounter with the misfit, and then things end awfully and awesomely and gothically. With, we should just say, the entire family being massacred, basically, right, by the misfit and his two companions. Yes. Who are a surprise, because when you first read about the misfit, you think that there are, and in fact, I had forgotten that there were two other people with him. Mm -hmm. When you first read about the misfit, it seems as though he's just on his own, making his way as a lonely figure, a lonely kind of antichrist through the world. But when he shows up, he's he's a trio. He's got these two uh, henchmen. Right. Yeah, in this conclusion, the grandmother with her sort of superficial ideas about Jesus and Christian kindness encountering this figure of nihilism, who's kind of like, I've never read Cormac McCarthy's um, No Country for Old Men, but Mm -hmm. the the misfit reminds me of the Javier Bardem character in the film version. Just kind of this force of motiveless evil. Um, I think he's very much like that. And, and Flannery O'Connor once, dis- in her book Mystery and Manners, described um, the terrain that this story and many of her other stories were working in as being about um, the action of grace in territory largely held by the devil. So, you know, she would go to that, and those he, words of evil and devil. And I she even and, says, he, the misfit actually says, Jesus thrown everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he hadn't committed any crime they could prove, and I had committed one because they had the papers on me. Right. So even he's just literally identifying himself as right. Jesus. Right. Well, especially once the grandmother brings... So w- one thing that really happens is the grandmother brings this brings religion into their encounter in a way that does seem at first... Right. As you said, Troy, I think I can't remember what word you used, whether it was superficial or... you know, But, but then ele- becomes a, a real sort of spiritual discussion. Um, And I know that there are many readings of the story that really kind of delve deeply into the kind of Catholic 
dogma that you can unpack from these different inter inter interactions. But you don't have to know all of that, I think, to no, feel the profound ambiguity and power of this encounter. Um, and I guess it's important to say, too, that the title, A Good Man is Hard to Find, comes from a line of dialogue. They Before they encounter the misfit, they stop for some barbecue at, uh, what's his name, Red Sam's place or something? And the yeah, Red Sammy's famous barbecue. And Red Sammy himself says to the grandmother, the Red Sammy is complaining about some guys who came through earlier and uh, he let them charge gas and they never came back to pay him. And he said, you know, you just can't tell with people anymore. And she says, it's true, you know, but you're clearly a good man. She says to him, you're clearly a good man, which is what she says to people, it seems like. And then he says, uh, you know, a good man is hard to find. Right. And, you know, a big rereading the story and I, I had been reading everything that rises must converge to when I was looking at the biography of her. It just one is struck so much by how O'Connor is. One thing she does, many of her stories have an older figure and then this younger family or a younger son, you know, a son in everything that rises must converge. It's a mother and her son. And so many of the stories are about this pivoting moment where there's a generation that feels the old Southern ways and manners are being lost. And it's such a pity. And you, as you said, Katie, like you, you relate a little bit to that figure as the grandmother and you relate a little bit to her early on because the kids are being, her grandchildren are being kind of annoying and rude. And she's like, oh, in my day, you didn't like, I can't remember. Let, let me find her actual quote. But she's saying, uh, you know, they're just they're being rude to her and they're saying, you know, she wouldn't stay at home for a million bucks. She's afraid she'd miss something. She has to go everywhere mm -hmm. we go. They're just being obnoxious little kids and, and the parents are not doing anything to mediate them. And so you feel a little bit you're deeply annoyed at the grandmother because you're like this woman is just would drive me crazy if she were living with me and my family. But you also feel a little like the kids are brats and someone should be tying them. But on the other hand, there's this really amazing moment. It's very typical of O'Connor where she's saying, in my time, children were more respectful of their native states and their parents and everything else. And you're starting to empathize with her. But then she turns around and says, oh, look at the cute little pickaninny, she said, and pointed to a Negro child standing in the door of a shack. Wouldn't that make a picture now? And it's, you know, that kind of what I think of as like the Ur Flannery O'Connor moment where the sort of upholding of the old traditions gets turned that coin gets turned over and you see of course the real problem with that right. and the the deep yeah the right. deep racial issues that are embedded in in that right yeah that's the the problem with the grandmother's notion of what a good man is it exactly. doesn't have anything to do with values it has to do with sort of coming from a good family right right, right. Uh, and you know, at somewhere at some point in here you know she's she's concerned at her death not that she be right with god but that her hat match her dress, right? And that well, she that she people would know she was a lady, right? right. Like by her organza. And even <laughs> even the moment where the son Bailey says something really sharp to her because he realizes that she shouldn't have said that she recognized the misfit, right? And then the misfit actually says, "I don't reckon he meant to talk to you that away because it was so awful." Right. So there's that moment where the misfit is the voice of like morality. Um, right, or at least keeps, polytest right, or something, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. and he keeps so that the twisting of who's good here, who's right, what's moral, what's it's all twisted up, you know. And just when mm -hmm. she, it's the same as when she started to say Jesus, Jesus. She's trying to say Jesus, help me, but it sounds like a curse. Mm -hmm. And every t everywhere, there's that ambiguity: where is it evil? Is it good? Is it moral? Is it not? Is it the old way? Is it the new way? And everything is turned on its head. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the sort of surprises of this story because, you know, in a way it's a sort of silly story. And, I mean, just if you thought looked at the plot. Mm-hmm. But it's so fascinating because the psychology is so complicated. Yeah. And well, the tensions between right. people. Yeah. No, and one of the questions that gets asked a lot, of, you know, certainly in kind of 10th grade discussions, right, of the story is, why does the grandmother call him a good man? Which I guess we were already touching on. That at first it's coming from this place of, so, like, I mean, she's trying to coax him into behaving right. Um, but it's also her idea of a good man is totally off. And so, in fact, the first time she says it, she says, I know you're a good man. You don't look a bit like you have common blood. Right. right? So it's it's not a moral issue so much as it is a, a kind of class or um, breeding issue. Right. So let's talk about the end and the conversation that Misfit and the grandmother have at the end. How do you read that conversation? Or what were you struck by in it? I'm sort of struck by the way that although the Misfit is you know, a homicidal psychopath, there's a kind of cogency to his point of view. He's, yes. he's sort of an existentialist. He's, he's sort of likable in his way because he's <laughs> sort of straightforward and he believes or rather disbelieves what he disbelieves and is he's sort of like comfortable yeah. with... Yeah, with, with the, all that. The, I don't know, the, the lawlessness of the world with the... Well, he has, you're right, like he has a belief system, which no one else, well, he has a belief system that's more metaphysical and actually grounded in morality, even though he's rejecting morality, which no one else here seems to have, I suppose. They're all embedded in a social belief system. But he, I'm just going to read that, um, Katie, I'm going to read that passage Mm -hmm. that you, actually not the one that you mentioned. You mentioned one where he, where um, Misfit says, Jesus shown everything off balance. It was the same case, him as with me, which is... Which is a good one. But there's another one a few paragraphs later where he says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He's shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some Mm -hmm. other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. I mean, that's where you do see that the, the kind of, stance does devolve into being a psychopathic stance, I think. But there is also, there is supposed to be some kind of, if we can't know, I mean, this is the problem of he doesn't have faith, so he's fine. He can't believe that there is a way of being, but for for him, Jesus has set up this dilemma, which is that if he exists, that's one, we we don't know, right? Like, now we have this problem that we have to figure out for ourselves. Right. And and as you say, he's he's a, basically a nihilist in some in some sense, the misfit. And but the old lady, she doesn't she she can't really quite go there with him. Well, what what there is is this kind of epiphany. The last her her last words are, you know, addressing the misfit. It's like, well, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. And that kind of embrace of even the psychopath is. Uh, indicative of this, this sort of kindness, warmth, um, how to put it, um, what's the word that's escaping me right now? Empathy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of like Christian empathy that mm-hmm. she's um, mm-hmm. so lacked throughout the story Fellow and presumably feeling. throughout her life. Right, right. Yeah, is that, that a transformation there? Yeah, I was going to ask. So what do we have and to read that? And then him, she touches him. And that's what causes him to shoot her, you know, and then he, he leans, you know, pulls back like a snake is bitten him. Mm-hmm. You know, again, more biblical. 
yeah, it's her recognizing him and embracing him, and she's one, you know, mm-hmm. you're one of my own children, which does sound like this sort of Christian warmth. And then he... And also almost the warmth of the pastor the, or Christ himself, right? right. Saying you are yeah. among, you're, you're God's child. But then to yeah. shatter that with this brutality, and then there's the shots, and then everyone's dead, and... You know, and it is a very brutal story. Yeah. You know, just as you were saying, it's like incredibly brutal here. Do you think that she's having an actual transformation there? I mean, are we in that moment when she says you're you're one of my babies? What is that? How did you? I I think that is sort of the the epiphanic moment in the story. Yeah. Uh, and I say that part. I'm reading this in a, in a borrowed copy that I, I picked uh-huh. up over the weekend. I didn't feel like lugging my complete stories around. Um, and does it say epiphany? So the reader has, has helpfully said epiphany right there. <laughs> um, but perhaps the, the most telling bit of marginalia in this book, and uh, maybe it applies to Flannery's corpus overall, uh, hardcore spiritual pornography. Uh-huh. Huh. Uh. <laughs> Which would be what? How would How would... It's, why is it spiritual pornography? Because because of the gruesomeness. Yeah, there's this kind of sort of gothic sensibility, mm-hmm. and actually, this re- reading this in connection with reading the Cheever mm-hmm. and thinking about Edgar Allan Poe lately, because it's a Poe bicentennial, right? It makes That's me right. wonder if the if the American short story is a fundamentally gothic form. That's a really interesting. Because I always think of the Gothic as being non-American, but more European yeah. than American. But there is deeply—I mean, O'Connor is deeply Gothic in some way, and there is a punishment. There's a punitive element in our stories. I mean, you think of everything that rises must converge, and the mother in that, who's been so awful, has the—I think it's a stroke or a heart attack at the end. You know, and there is that. She's also really interested, though, I think, in how we misconceive our, our ta- ourselves in time and our, we misconceive our spiritual selves that we get embroiled in this. I think one uh, one reason she has these gothic turns is to kind of reveal the majesty and awesomeness in the old sense of the word of, you know, of if we are God's creations, like that we're just these little parts of this big puzzle and things can turn in ways. I mean, she's interested in evil. She's interested in the the entrance of the devil into these landscapes, quite literally. And we walk around not realizing that, you know, kind of uh, protecting ourselves from that realization. And she wants to shatter us that, I think, shatter that self-protection. And I think what's interesting is that that whole kind of spiritual apparatus is juxtaposed against a more ordinary, you know, what we're looking at Achiever, which is... The idea that people don't connect, that families are disappointing, that nobody really, you know, that you can have this sort of hopes and loves for people and they end up always disappointing you. And, you know, all of that kind of missed connection between people is yeah. is her other theme. And it's both those yeah. two fused together. So it's sort of this ordinary, disastrous family trip. Right. Combined with this, like, lurid, Squabbling gothic tale. Yeah. yeah. And it's both those elements that make it, yeah. your, you know, kind of impossible to distinguish. No, and, and in a funny way, Bailey, who's the son here, is an interesting role because he's one of the few people, he's the only adult given a name. The grandmother doesn't have a name either. It's the grandmother and his wife. The children have names, and then Bailey has is named. He also says something that I think is sort of her statement, a statement um, in the story of of what the story is about, where he says the misfit's there, and the misfit is starting to kind of you know, he's drawing out the conversation, but you have the sense that he's about to do what he did, then does, which is to kill them. And Bailey says, listen, we're in a terrible predicament. No one, Nobody realizes what this is. 
And then she writes, and his voice cracked. His eyes were as blue and intense as the parrots in his shirt, and he remained perfectly still. And I think that's it's what it's another thing O'Connor does so well, which is to kind of have these big statements. I mean, that statement sort of operates on so many mm-hmm. levels. It's what Bailey is saying about the moment, but it's also what she's saying about the characters, her characters, that they are in a terrible predicament, that they don't realize what that is. Um, but then the way she does these, she's such an eye that, you know, the blue and intense as the parrots in his shirt and the shirt has become, the shirt becomes this really important item in the story because, of course, it gets taken off Bailey and put on the misfit. And it's almost like the sort of commun- it's almost like this wafer, the sort of clothing wafer that gets passed from one to the other. But there's just so many moments of little descriptions that seem really, really spot on. Yeah, the the parrots are interesting too, considering Miss O'Connor's uh, sort of fetish for birds. Mm, mm-hmm. um, we're going to have to bring this discussion to a close in a few minutes. But is there anything else that either of you wants to say about the story, or again, just about her and her work more broadly, or other things that you would recommend, other stories we would recommend to our listeners in particular? Well, I think the one you've been mentioning, Everything That Rises Must Converge, is yeah. a great one. Uh, about the story itself, I wonder, just as a kind of thought experiment, if it would be the same story were it uh, set north of the Mason-Dixon line. You know, I think that, you know, that the grandmother's sort of racial attitudes are a big part of what's damnable about it. But, I mean... Could this story just as well be set in Cleveland or Boston? I feel like it can't. I feel like those things are totally tied up mm. with one another. That yeah. the, I mean, on the one hand, the answer should be yes. If what she's really, if what O'Connor is really interested in are these battles of you know good, the metaphysics of good and evil. On the one hand, you would think yes, her stories could be set anywhere. But that's part of what's so interesting to me about O'Connor is, on the one hand, she is is interested in these large spiritual metaphysical questions. On the other hand, she's so much a writer of a particular, not just place, but a particular time in that place, which was this transitional Mm -hmm. moment, right? Where someone of her generation would have much more, what we would consider to be enlightened attitudes about Mm -hmm. race, but she would be surrounded by parents, aunts, family, friends, Mm -hmm. townspeople who, talked the way the grandmother talks in this story. And that, to me, is just so embedded in the power of this story. But, Katie, what do you think? No, I think that's true. And I think you couldn't take it out for those reasons. What about you, Troy? Since you you posed the question, you now have to answer it. Well, I, I, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> Again, I, yeah, I just called it a thought experiment. Um, <laughs> and, and, no, I, I think that the, the South is important in the in the sort of the atmosphere and the humidity of the story, not to yeah fetishize the South too much, but but yeah, and, and this particular kind of nostalgia, the particular like nostalgia for plantations, and mm-hmm. well, that's part of what makes me feel this story is so set there. There's definitely the humidity, the kind of overripeness of everything, that sense that you have of like you know, I think that's one reason the South is a great setting for the gothic is that, you know, in ripeness you have rot, that kind of mm-hmm. feeling that you have there. But she's also, it is really about the literal history. I mean, there's so much mention of plantations and what was here and when I went to this plantation and that sense of someone whose roots reach back into this very different social moment. And um, I guess maybe we should say a word or two about the biographies. I've, I've, I haven't made my way totally through either one, but I'm really enjoying the Blake Bailey's Cheever biography. And Blake actually has written for Slate, so 
I should say he's an acquaintance, but um, I'm, I'm very much enjoying it. I've read less of the Flannery O'Connor. You know, I've only glanced at these books uh, briefly. I haven't given them the time that they, they deserve. They both seem quite good and interesting. The Flannery, the Flannery book is uh, more of a crisp, straightforward biography, where the, the Cheever biography like feels more novelistic. I think that's partly because of the, the richness of the writing and partly because... You know, Cheever led a bigger, sadder life. Yeah. And I do think that is Blake Bailey's style. I mean, I think he, he's trying to do something like that, where he's making the book itself almost novelistic. But you're right that that fits with Cheever somehow in a yeah. really interesting way. Great. Well, thank you both for joining me. Uh, for Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke. Please join us next time on the Audiobook Club. The next book we'll be discussing is Thy Neighbor's Wife by Gay Toulouse. This groundbreaking book caused a sensation when it was first published in 1981, with its very up-close look at the sexual lives of Americans in the pre-HIV era. Pick up a copy and join us for a discussion of Thy Neighbor's Wife, coming to the podcast on July 16, 2009. Thanks for joining us on Slate's Audio Book Club.